Good morning, Bel Air Church. Wow, you guys are ready. I can feel it. I mean, this whole service has just been like, I, the spirit is moving. I've just got to get out of the way. It is uh, good to be with you. My name is Mike Morgan. I'm the pastor of Caring Ministries here at Bel Air. And usually I'm serving as assisting in the 901 service, so rarely do I get to actually see you from this angle. I'm usually participating with you in worship, but it's good to be with you this morning. As you know, we are in a new series uh, that Pastor Drew kicked off two weeks ago uh, called Summer Cinema, God's Wisdom Through Solomon and the Silver Screen. And we looked at the Apostle Paul in our first week and the way in which he uh, engaged the poets of his day to be able to communicate the wisdom that's found in Scripture. And so we thought, hey, let's do that ourselves, right? Who are the poets of our day, the writers, the directors, the movie makers? And let's take what they have and let's allow that to enhance the truth that's found in God's Word. So that's what we're going to hope to do again today. If you would, before we jump too far in, would you pray with me? Lord God, we ask... Now we praise you. <laughs> yeah. You're here. You're with us. We trust that. We, we feel that. And we thank you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit and the way in which it moves. And God, that you would move again in and through us. That you would open up our eyes and our ears to hear and see your truth. God, that you would help us to feel the mercy that comes from you. We love you. We give you glory, and it's for the glory of Jesus Christ that we pray these things. Amen. Well, this morning, I invite you to turn to Proverbs, so go ahead and grab your Bible. We're going to Proverbs chapter 28, verses 13. If you don't have your Bible, there's one in front of you, or if you're in the front row, you're right underneath, or just, I'm not going to take offense if you're on your, you know, smartphone, okay? I trust you're not texting anyone, that's fine. But uh, Proverbs 28. Proverbs 28, verse 13, it's in page 533 in the Red Pew Bible. It's a short passage, and I want you to miss it. Here it is. No one who conceals transgressions will prosper, but one who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I have, was raised in the church, okay? I uh, have had... I've heard plenty of sermons that have to do with like sin and confession and repentance and I can already see it in some of your faces. You're like, oh no, seriously, today? Like really, of all the days I choose to go to church and today's the day we're gonna talk about sin? Great, um, excuse me, sir, ma'am, no, please come back, don't leave, it's okay. Um, just kidding, there's no one leaving. But we don't have to run. We don't have to run from our sin. God's not afraid of it. Jesus took care of it, and we don't have to hide from it. But it's understandable that many of us have anxiety when we talk about sin. In my experience, and maybe yours, that when sin is talked about, when we have the courage to share our, our struggles with other people, we often are faced with a bunch of shoulds. We end up getting shoulded on. Let me explain. Now, let me, let me describe. You might have heard this when you're feeling depressed. You know what? You should pray more. When you're feeling distant from God, you really should read your Bible more. You know, life's not working out the way you thought. You know what you should do? Don't you love that? You know what you should do? You should get right with God. That's your problem. Man, I imagine many of us hear similar shoulds this morning. 
And in order to hear the wisdom that's found in Proverbs 28, 13, I think we do need to become aware of those shoulds and the guilt and shame that's usually couched within those. It's never directly said, okay? I mean, it's usually, you know, kind of backhanded in the way it's said. You know, if life isn't working out for you, if you're not prospering as a person, no one ever directly says, well, you're just not a good enough person. You know, you never hear like, well, it's because you're just not spiritual enough, right? But when we actually have the courage to share our pain, and when it's followed up with these shoulds of prayer or of Bible reading or of, you know, having a lack of faith, what we really hear from the person is that your suffering is a result of your sinfulness. And this is not what Solomon is saying at all. When we read that no one who conceals transgressions will prosper, the proverb is not saying that those who don't prosper is is somehow, you know, someone whose lives are not working out as planned must therefore have unconfessed sin in their life. That's not what this proverb is saying at all. In fact, it's a huge assumption And it's an insult to someone's injury. Why do we assume? Why do we assume that just because someone's life isn't working out the way they had planned, that they must have unconfessed sin in their life? What makes these shoulds even more crazy-making is that there is, they just like twist the truth, right? I mean, is prayer and Bible reading and small groups and common fellowship, aren't they important? Absolutely right? But it twists that. In fact, there's a, there's a great promise about living out God's ways that we can find in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Moses says this, God's ways are given to us so that life might go well for us, that we would prosper. But we have to be careful here. See, those of us who are prospering, those of us whose life seems to be working out We cannot cast judgment upon those of us whose life seems to be not working out the way we had thought. When someone's life is falling apart and we say it must be because they have a poor relationship with God or they must have unconfessed sin in their life, we end up hurling judgments. And when we say that, you know, if you were more spiritual or if you just had more faith, you wouldn't be hurting we end up blaming the victim. And by doing so, we end up creating a culture of guilt and shame. And we wouldn't be the first. In fact, we've, this has been happening for a very long time. Consider Job. You guys know Job, right? Job is this man in scripture that experienced the kind of suffering that I pray none of us in this church ever would. And if you don't know Job, I want to give you a little background on him. Job was a wealthy man. He was a a healthy guy. He had a big family, lots of livestock, a flourishing farm. In fact, um, his friends, if if you're a friend of Job, you might call him blessed until he lost it all, everything, gone. I'm talking family, wealth, health, livestock, farm, all gone. And what came in its place? Boils all over 
his body and a seemingly silence from God. See, when Job was prospering, he was known as a man of faith. But when he was suffering, what did his friends say about him? Your suffering, Job, they would say, is a result of your unconfessed sin. They said that. Check it out. They literally said that. They would blame the victim. You know, Job, if you only had more faith, this wouldn't have happened to you. They judge his faith. And you know what the ironic thing about this is that Job was actually chosen by God because of his character, because of his faithfulness. I mean, his friends had it all wrong. All wrong. And friends, there are people in our community today who are with us this morning in this room or watching online that are suffering. That are suffering and they're doing everything that they know how to do. They're praying, they're reading their Bible, they're participating in, in fellowship with one another. They're doing everything that they can do, that they know how to do, but they're still experiencing pain. And if this is you this morning, I need you to hear me. Your suffering is not about you being good enough. The pain that you're experiencing is not because you're not somehow spiritual enough. God is not shaming you. God is not punishing you. Today is not gonna be a day about shoulds that lead to guilt and shame. Today is about what we can do. Today is about what we get to do. Today is about life. It's about experiencing mercy. If you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm not quite sure what page number it is on in your Bible. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, mine's in page 168. Not super helpful for you, but I thought I'd share. Um, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. Sorry? 949, thank you. 949. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. Following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in our passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses. And we were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else. But, but God, notice it doesn't say but you, okay? It doesn't say but you who are good enough or you who are somehow spiritual enough. No, it says but God who is rich in mercy. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe that God is rich in mercy? Do you believe that there is no guilt and shame in the presence of Almighty God? And it's this God who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead through our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved. Church, if we cultivate an environment of judgment, a culture of guilt and shame, we won't thrive as individuals. We won't thrive as a community. In fact, we are in danger of hindering other brothers and sisters from thriving as well. That's a scary thought, isn't it? It's a scary thought to think that somehow, maybe by our action or inaction, that we could actually hinder someone from prospering. At Bel Air, we don't want to be about that. No, we want to be a courageous community of mercy. And so as we turn back to Proverbs 28, 13, I want us to remember that. We want to be a courageous community of mercy. Proverbs 28, 13, again, Solomon, no one who conceals their sin will prosper, but the one who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. And I imagine many of you now having read this passage twice now, at face value, you're thinking to yourselves, but those who conceal are prospering. I mean, haven't you heard the news, Pastor? I mean, where are you? Look at our leading politicians. I mean, they're hiding their tax returns and they're deleting emails. Or our professional athletes are lying about their actions so they get a shorter prison sentence. Or we look at universities, right? They should be upright, right? No, they're hiding. They're hiding what they're doing so that they can get more people on campus. In fact, if we had a cultural maxim, if we had some sort of societal proverb, it would be the exact opposite of what Solomon is saying. Our cultural belief is that those who, conceals, those who conceal their transgressions will prosper. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah complains about this. He writes in Jeremiah 12.1, Why does the way of the guilty prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? So at this point... I think it's important for us to remember the difference between prophetic literature and wisdom literature, right? Proverbs is wisdom literature, and it's meant to be interpreted different than prophetic literature. See, in prophetic literature, you read something, and it's, it's basically, and this is how it will go. God will be faithful to carry this about. But wisdom literature is interpreted differently. Wisdom literature is for our instruction, for our training, so that we don't become a people of foolishness, but rather a people of wisdom. And so as we read this proverb, we have to ask, what is the wisdom that Solomon, or that God through Solomon is trying to communicate to us? See, when Solomon says, no one who conceals will prosper. Let's talk about that word prosper for a second. Prosper, to thrive, to flourish, to blossom, to bloom. I imagine seeing a, a, a huge mature orange tree with just ripe, juicy fruit hanging from it. That's the picture I want you to have. But Solomon makes an intentional understatement when he says that they will not prosper. See, if we conceal our sins, the opposite of prosper is true. When we conceal our sin, we become undone. We become ruined. We say that it's eating us up inside. You ever heard that? Imagine that same orange tree being rotted from the inside. That's what sin does to us. And our culture 
knows this to be true. You see it all over in cinema. And the movie that really strikes me, that really comes to mind, is from a book by J.R.R. Tolkien, who is a friend of C.S. Lewis, and he wrote The Hobbit and later The Lord of the Rings. You've seen this, maybe? So there's a trilogy that was put together uh, by Peter Jackson called The Lord of the Rings, and the, the clip we're about to see is from Return to the King. The ring, the ring that he's holding represents his, well, I don't know if I want to do it with my wedding ring. Um, I think my wife would be pretty upset if I said, uh, okay, so um, the wing, you get the idea. So the ring um, that he's holding represents our lust for power. Okay, and if you've seen the movie, you know that the proud owner of the ring is this hobbit named Smeagol. Smeagol, or later to be known as Gollum. Now, Smeagol becomes intoxicated by this ring. He is corrupted by his lust. And the years of the ring's influence ends up twisting his mind. It ends up destroying his body to the point to where he becomes unrecognizable. Yikes, right? Sorry, I should have prepared you a little bit more. Uh, He kind of is a freaky guy, okay? You know, this guy Smeagol is torn. He's torn between this love-hate relationship with the ring and this love-hate relationship with himself. He's torn because he so badly desires the ring, but he so badly desires to be free from it. And unfortunately, Smeagol pursues this ring to his death. Now, if you think that's a little scary, I have to warn you, we're about to go into a pretty intense clip we're at like the pinnacle, the, the climax of the movie. Imagine us right now in our quiet place going into a, the climax of a movie. It's going to be boom, okay? So just prepare yourself for it. And uh, Smeagol looks pretty disturbing. But there's nothing pretty about sin. I think that the, the way that this clip depicts perfectly what happens when we become consumed Take a look. What's the sin you're holding on to? Or the sin that's got its hold on you that you know will lead to destruction? See, for some of us, we can become so wrapped up in our sin and in our brokenness that we become like Smeagol, completely oblivious that we're falling to our destruction. I met a man recently, his name is Robert. He, I met him at the Union Rescue Mission, went and visited with him. And if you ever get a chance to go down to the Union Rescue Mission I, and you have a chance, just ask for Robert, just to speak. I mean, this guy will pump you up, okay? He's just like electric. And in the first 30 seconds, he's telling me his testimony. He just wants to share it with me. And I'm so impacted by this man's testimony, I feel like I have to share it with you. So this is Robert's story. When I came to the Union Rescue Mission, I had one foot in the tomb. I had spent two days sober. I hadn't spent two days sober in more than 50 years. I lost everything, my family, home, career, and I was in deep debt. I once lived with a view of the ocean, and now my view is Skid Row. Quite a fall for a man with a master's degree from one Ivy League university and one who once served as dean of men at another. I started drinking when I was 15. 
I was already an alcoholic in college. I met my wife, Kim, in a New York bar. And by the time we were married, she quit drinking. I didn't. For more than 20 years, she tried to get me to stop, and she made my life miserable. And now I realize that she was the one person who showed me what real love looks like. And as my drinking became unbearable, Kim kicked me out. So I drank even more. And to pay rent, I borrowed from my wife and my mother. In August 2014, I got evicted from my apartment. And that's when Kim brought me to the Union Rescue Mission. And when I told her I'm not going in there, she responded, then you can live under a bridge. She saved my life that day. I stayed but that meant I had to face the lies I had built my life upon. I'm not an alcoholic. I can quit anytime I want. Or the lie that I'm too smart for this. I have an Ivy League education. Or the lie that I'm, I'm not as bad as all those other alcoholics and junkies. And the lie of all lies, God hates me for what I've done. Slowly, I gave up every one of those lies, but the last one, until my chaplain looked me in the eyes and asked, who told you that God hated you? My chaplain started going through scripture with me and enabled me to realize God didn't hate me. He loved me unconditionally. Nothing could ever make him stop loving me. And when I understood that, I could finally face the incredible shame and guilt that kept me drinking for 50 years. And I left all that shame and guilt on the cross of Jesus Christ. And after Jesus died on that cross, he lay dead in a tomb. And when I came to URM, I lay dead in that same tomb. But here's the thing. Three days after they put Jesus in that tomb, he walked out with a resurrected life. And when he walked out, he carried me with him. Now I have a hope and a future. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I mean, this guy in 30 seconds just wanted to tell me his story because he experienced mercy. And when you experience mercy, you want to talk about it. You want to tell someone. There's a comment he makes in that story where he says, as my drinking became unbearable, Kim kicked me out, so I drank even more. You know, our sin ends up leading to our ruin, and our ruin ends up leading to our sin, and our sin ends up leading to our ruin. We get caught in this sin cycle, and we become completely oblivious to the fact that we're creating our own destruction. And this is what Solomon is talking about. He says that you, you can't hold on to your sin and expect to prosper. You must release so that you can grab hold of mercy. I've heard from many of you who confess and renounce but don't feel any different. Your pain doesn't seem to go away. It feels like God hasn't done anything at all. You might know cognitively, yes, or theologically that God is merciful, but you don't feel it. You don't ever experience it. Why? I mean, isn't this how healing and wholeness is supposed to work? I mean, aren't we supposed to pray and confess and renounce our sins to God? Shouldn't all of our addictions, our depression, our anxieties, our self-destructive behavior, 
shouldn't it all just go away? Shouldn't God just take care of it? God should do this, shouldn't he? But why do we think this way? Why do we think that God is somehow supposed to just zap our sin away? Why? Are we supposed to confess and renounce our sin to God? Yes, absolutely. Clearly, Solomon says that in this passage. And does God offer mercy and forgiveness? Yes, without a doubt. But God's plan has always been for mercy to be embodied. We are always supposed to experience healing and wholeness through relationship. In fact, God became human. God chose to do that. He didn't have to do that. He chose to. It was God's plan all along so that we might experience mercy, so that love could be touched, so that forgiveness could be heard, so that mercy could be seen. God's mercy became tangible from the person of Jesus Christ. And we can experience this mercy today through the people of Christ's church. I mean, we say this all the time, don't we? We say that we are the body of Christ, right? But then when it comes to receiving and experiencing the grace and mercy of God, then why do we always make it just between me and God? Why? God doesn't even believe that. See, Ephesians 4 tells us the body is designed, the body of Christ is designed to support the growth of one another. 1 Peter 4 says that we are called stewards of the grace of God. 2 Corinthians 7, Paul tells us that God did comfort him when he was grieving. But how? How did God show mercy to Paul while he was grieving? Through Titus, through his brother. God used Titus to embody mercy. God chooses to make mercy known, felt, experienced through the church. But when we hide from God and when we hide from one another, we are short-circuiting God's plan. We are short-circuiting the mercy that God wants to give to us. This is why life groups are so vital. This is why, you know, Stephen's ministers and the prayer team and and spiritual directors and um, ministries like Celebrate Recovery are so vital so that we can actually have a tangible experience of the mercy of God. I believe no one experiences mercy embodied quite like our brothers and sisters in Celebrate Recovery. I might be a little biased because I am the pastor of Caring Ministries. I get it. But in recovery fellowship, everyone knows, it's no secret, that sin thrives when we try to hide it. Everyone knows that our addictions gain greater power when we live in denial. If you're in recovery fellowship, everyone knows that sin will destroy us if we don't confess and turn from it. See, in recovery fellowship, there's no concept of being good enough, okay? Perfectionism and control, we know, only help to feed our addictions. And as a church, I believe that we could learn from their example. I believe that we could benefit from their wisdom. I believe that we could heal from their practices. All right, we got a couple in here. Here we go. 
See, in Recovery Fellowship, the first thing we have to do is admit that we are powerless, that we are not in control. That leads to the second step, which is that God is powerful and that God can bring healing and wholeness. And when we learn that, when we know that, then we entrust in the third step, we entrust God with our lives to do the work in and through us. But in order to do that, step four is intense. I just want to make sure I get it right. We have to do a search, a fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Because there is no fear. We are serving a, a merciful God, a, a God that, that has all grace and love for us. Why do we have to fear? No, we can have a fearless moral inventory of ourselves so that, step five, we can confess to God, to ourselves, and to one another the exact nature of our sin. I'm not going to go through all the steps. <laughs> you can look them up. But step 12 says that we carry this message to others and practice these principles every day, everywhere, with everyone. Okay, so it doesn't exactly say that, okay? It doesn't, I mean, but it, okay. So it does say that you practice these principles in all of our affairs, which is basically the same thing, isn't it? This is amazing. It's amazing. I mean, why don't we do this? Is it like, do they have like the corner market on this? Is, that, is it only restricted to like AA and to celebrate recovery? No, it's not. No, Proverbs 28, 13. Solomon says that we can do this. We get to do this. In fact, Bel Air, we actually hold this to be one of our values. Courage, courage. Living as a follower of Jesus, regardless of how vulnerable that makes you. That as we embody courage through our brokenness, others might see. Others might see. How are they going to see if we hide our brokenness all the time? How are they going to see the power of God at work in our lives if we are going to just be concealed to God, to ourselves, and to one another? They're they're never going to see. And it's going to feel like, God, you're not doing anything. You're not even showing up. But he is. He is in Robert. He is in you. We just don't know about it. We got to talk about it. We got to share it so that God might receive glory because the power of God is at work. Don't mean to preach. Preach. (laughs) Hmm. What if all of us at Bel Air committed to this? What if we all committed that we were no longer going to hide from God, from ourselves, or from one another? What if we all committed to doing a fearless moral inventory of ourselves, that we were actually honest about what's going on? And what if we committed to finding one person whom we trust, not just some random person, not just to like unload all your stuff on somebody, but one person whom you trust so that you can tell the exact nature of your sin. Could you imagine? Could you imagine the healing that could come from that? Could you imagine experiencing God, Jesus, in a whole new way, in a tangible way, in a palpable way, you would experience mercy and forgiveness? 
Imagine the freedom that would come, the freedom from fear and shame that would open up a way of love for us to experience grace, to encounter mercy. See, at Bel Air, we believe that God plans to bring healing and wholeness through this church, who is Christ's body. We believe that to thrive as individuals and as a community, we must be courageous with God, ourselves, and one another. And we believe that God's mercy is available and is meant to be experienced by every one of us, through every one of us. This, we believe, is what it means to prosper. This is what it means to find mercy. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God of mercy, that you are a God of grace and of love, and we can come to you. We don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to fear. God, that you see us. You see us, and you call us your beloved. You know us completely, and you're inviting us to be honest with you, to be honest with ourselves, to be honest with one another. God, give us the courage, please, through the power of your spirit. Do a work here. Transform this community. May there be new life, a life of freedom, a life of mercy. We love you. We praise you. Thank you for your word. It's your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.